Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 18th, 2011, and my guest is Freeman Dyson. Professor Dyson, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. You've written in praise of heretics. Uh, what is a heretic in your, in your view, and why are they important? Well, because there's a tendency for people to think in groups and sort of to follow the party line. Most, most of the time, we're sort of happy going along with what other people are thinking, and it's very often what other people are thinking is wrong. And, and so if, if you are a heretic and st- stick out for something uh, un- unorthodox, you have a chance to do something important. You said that most people are comfortable going along. That's not the impression, I think, that most people have of scientists. I think we have a romantic vision of scientists sitting in a laboratory seeking truth. Um, why do you think there's groupthink in science? Well, I see it all all around me. I mean, and I'm a victim of it myself. I mean, especially in astronomy, because the universe is far away and long ago, and and you have all sorts of pictures about it, what we call models, which are descriptions of the way we think it is, and uh, of course they are hopelessly oversimplified. But but still, it's nice to have a model to have some picture of what it is you're talking about. And people just tend to believe their own models after a while and lose, sort of lose the awareness that the, the model may be very different from reality. Have you seen many cases in your experience where a scientist who's devoted a significant chunk of of time and, and passion to a model say, it was wrong, I made a oh, mistake? Oh, very often. I mean, that happens all the time. I suppose particularly in astronomy, but but, uh, because one of the famous examples was the the, uh, drifting continent idea of, of, uh, what's his name, the German, um, you probably know him, that the... um, The continental drift guy. (laughs) Yeah. It'll come to me. Anyway, um, this, this German in the 1920s propounded the idea that the continents are moving around and nobody believed it for a long time. They preferred to think of the continents as fixed and uh, for no particular reason except that that was the majority view. Anyhow, it turned out that after all they do drift and we now, we now measure it and know exactly how it happens. Well, it's, it's a great example because there's, there's one data point that's obvious to everyone – which is that it looks like Africa fits in nicely into the gap between South America and North America, but, of course, that could just be a coincidence. Yes, that was, of course, (laughs) the the starting point of the whole thing, yes. Uh, There's a famous story about Einstein. I wonder if you know if if you can verify it, Um, and you'll help me with the details of the science. So when he made his prediction about light being bent by the gravitational force of the sun – there was a famous experiment to test that, and it was confirmed uh, 
to the delight of many, of course, including Mr. Einstein. And, and someone said to him, well, what would you have done if it, it turned out to be wrong? And he said, I wouldn't have believed it because I know my theory is right. Is that a true story, do you think? Yes, more or less true. It's, um, no, of course, uh, I mean, he was, of course, a heretic. And uh, he had this marvelous instinct for what was really there. And uh, he, 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 he had this sublime confidence that he could guess the way w- w- the, the world was made. And he turned out to be right. Of course, sometimes he wasn't right, <laughs> but mostly he was. But presumably there, could have, there would have been enough data at some point to convince him to say I was wrong. If he'd lived long enough, for example, maybe to see some of the things that, that, that prove some of his, things wrong, his theories wrong. Well, he never did, of course. I mean, the, the, his, his, and I don't think any of his theories really turned out to be wrong. His, his great failure was the unified field theory, which wasn't so much wrong, but it just it, it wasn't even wrong. It was never well formulated and never clear enough to be wrong. That's a great advantage to some theories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, for him, it, of course, it was a great disappointment, but... Uh, but he he never actually said it was wrong. But he merely he, he, he at the end of his life he knew he wasn't wasn't getting there. It must have been very uh, very sad. It was sad. Yes. Could you see it? No, I didn't, it know, I didn't Could you know. I didn't know him personally. Uh huh. The um, the question of of data and testing theories and the unwillingness of the difficulty of of admitting that you're wrong raises a question that's often in the news today about consensus. Is consensus a meaningful way to think about how science moves forward? What's the best way to think about it? No, of course, consensus does have a good meaning. It, it when 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 large numbers of people agree about something, that's a consensus. But um, it's not something that you necessarily believe in. It is. I mean, consensus may be right or it may be wrong. It's certainly quite real. And, of course, in the example of climate science, which is where this is an acute problem, the whole subject has become political, which makes it then a much more dubious undertaking because so many people are in it for political reasons. And then... Of course, the, the consensus becomes politically important, and, uh, and that distorts the, the science in an unfortunate way. What do you mean when you say it's political? Well, that there's a very large uh, po- political fight going on about climate change, in which there are strong passions involved on both sides, and large amounts of money. I mean, it, it's a very, it's a very big. Uh, economic question what one ought to do about climate change and there are very large numbers of people whose livelihood depends on keeping the public alarmed and that's unhealthy. And they'd respond I think by saying but there's a lot of people on the other side who have a big financial stake in keeping the public uh, sleepy. Right. And that's true, of course. I mean, yeah. there, are, there are big financial interests on both sides. So how do we uh, 
How does a layperson, a non-expert, how does how do you evaluate those two sides? Well, I would say keep an open mind as far as you can. That's I mean, but that's true whether you're a scientist or not. <laughs> it's, always be skeptical. Don't necessarily believe because somebody's an expert that he knows what is true. What is true, and experts are usually experts in a very narrow field, and so they don't have a good view of the whole story. Yeah, my view is that sometimes experts are right and sometimes they're wrong. It's right. Your 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 continental drift story, plate tectonics. That's that's definitely an example. There's so many examples in medicine and science where a heretic on something like ulcers, continental drift. Uh, so many things is viewed as a, or in the case of economics, monetary policy, a maverick view is viewed as a is unacceptable and outside the mainstream until it turns out to be true. Um, I'm going re- to read a lengthy quote, somewhat lengthy quote that you from you of a few years ago, and I like it a lot because it captures what's what I see as the difficulties. The quote's about climate change, but I see it as a quote about economics and really any complex system that where you struggle to figure out what the world would be like without the intervention that you care about or the change that you care about. So you have to have a model of the underlying reality, and we struggle to do that. So here's the quote: "Quote." When I listen to the public debates about climate change, I, impress, I am impressed by the enormous gaps in our knowledge, the sparseness of our observations, and the superficiality of our theories. Many of the basic processes of planetary ecology are poorly understood. They must be better understood before we can reach an accurate diagnosis of the present condition of our planet. When we are trying to take care of a planet, just as when we are taking care of a human patient, diseases must be diagnosed before they can be cured. We need to observe and measure what is going on in the biosphere rather than relying on computer models. Uh, have your views changed since you wrote that? Uh, no, you... I think that's a good – that's a fair statement. And, yeah, no, I would stick with that. And how do you respond to the people who say, but, but there's a threat and, and the natural healthy thing to do is to reduce our risk and, and respond to it as best we can? Even if we don't understand it perfectly, if we, if we wait till then, we'll, it'll be too late. Well, no, that that's not the choice you have. The, the, the choice, I mean, every everything you do is risky. You don't you don't just by trying to reduce the, the burning of fossil fuels it doesn't mean mean you've got rid of the risk. It's you're merely taking different kinds of risk, but they could be worse. I mean, that that's the. It could very well be that the uh, welfare of the planet actually would be damaged. By reducing carbon dioxide, we just don't know. And so, what do you advise? I advise just waiting to see what 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 the processes are until we understand well enough actually to take action which, where we know what the results will be. Well, there are certain things you can anyway do, of course, which makes sense. And, and undoubtedly, a lot of the the actions we could take are just using less energy or using energy in a less wasteful fashion. That's good no matter what. And, and uh, So there's a great deal you can do. But the real question is whether you put a price on carbon which makes the poor people poorer and enriches the, the, the people who have solar panels on their roofs. And that kind of thing is... Uh, to my mind, likely to be counterproductive. Yeah, well, I'm with you on that, but of course, we're we're very much in 
in the minority. You've you've suggested some creative ideas for reducing carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere. You've also made the observation, as many have, that there is a natural climate cycle that we're not fully understanding the role of human intervention into that cycle. We may be facing an ice age at some point in the future. It seems likely. Uh, and it, it may or may not be possible to avert that with human intervention. But you've proposed a lot of creative ideas with tree planting and topsoil and, and other ideas, as, as have some other scientists. Does anybody take those seriously? Do they get a hearing? Yes, I think some of us do. It is, uh, I mean, I, I make a distinction sort of between what they call geoengineering, which is big, sort of colossal schemes for changing the whole planet in some big fashion, and land management, which is doing it on a local basis in a much more conservative fashion. I think those two are very different, and the public doesn't make much of a distinction. So so I would say, on the whole, that the sort of big geoengineering schemes mostly don't make sense, but land management on a local level does make sense, and, and it could be quite effective. I was just re- reading an interesting piece called Growing Cows on Grass, which is about the, the ecological benefits of growing cows on grass as opposed to growing corn and feeding the corn to the cows in feedlots. And that actually could make a big difference. And, and some farmers in Minnesota are actually doing it with grass and doing very well. So that's the sort of thing I believe does make sense. Might taste better. Might be more consistent with our evolutionary uh, insides, too. <laughs> yeah, and the main point is you can make mistakes and it's not catastrophic. Yeah. Um, you are – your politics are, are generally described as, as left of center. Right. Uh, you have – I would suggest it's obviously here's – a, here's a, an estimate – you probably have the highest IQ of any climate skeptic, uh, and this has caused a great deal of consternation in the scientific community and in the activist community that you're unwilling to be on that uh, bandwagon of climate change. What have been – if you can talk about it, if you're comfortable, what have been some of the costs to you? Really very little. I mean I'm, I'm, I'm not suffering from this. I guess uh, – I, I, I don't even get hate mail. It is, uh, I mean, I actually get more hate mail from, from owners of Dyson vacuum cleaners <laughs> who think I'm responsible because the damn thing doesn't work. <laughs> so, no, this is really not a problem for me at all. I, I mean, my, my my friends maybe have, 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 have think I'm going a little bit gaga, but... Um, they don't, but I, I don't suffer from that. You haven't been shunned. Oh no, no, no. People here are very friendly, and 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 I get, of course, I, I get invited to give lectures, and people generally are very friendly. Because I find what I find interesting, and in, in certainly in economics, where there's much less ability to test theories, so it's very easy to maintain a, a theory that's wrong or confused or misleading for. Centuries, perhaps. Um, uh, mercantilism goes back to, I think, the 14th century. It's still thriving. Uh, it's very hard to jar people away from that. So the earlier issue we talked about of groupthink, what I find interesting is just the social pressure 
to be part of the team, part of the gang, part of the group. And um, for me, when I look at economists who've taken non-mainstream positions, they the suffering is you know is the feeling of ostracism and a lack of respect, uh, the feeling that you're in the wilderness in terms of prizes and awards and and honors and I think that's hard for some people. Um, so I'm, I, I'm happy to hear that you haven't borne any personal costs of that kind. No, absolutely not. And because uh, it helps to be old. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> I don't have to worry about finding a job. And... <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably true, right? If you were younger, they'd probably be meaner to you too. Um, let's turn. Uh, Oh, well, let me ask just one more last question, question on climate change. Do you think um, do you think we're going to come to a different viewpoint? Do you think there's going to be some evolution in how we consider this issue? Oh, do you yes. think more data will come in? And yes, I, I've, I mean I've seen it change so many times in my own lifetime. Uh, certainly, uh, I think it's bound to change, and all sorts of things will happen that are unexpected. Let's turn to a general science question. What do you think are the most important unanswered questions in science? Will they be answered? And are there limits to our knowledge in the, of the physical world? What yeah, well, of course, it, 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 I don't know any, any better than anybody else. I mean, number one question for me, I guess, is the origin of life. That's something I've thought about quite a lot. Uh, still completely mysterious. It, there's no, uh, not even an, uh, there's also not even an experimental attack that one can think of that would settle that. And and, uh, but I'm, I'm fairly confident we will understand it in a hundred years or so, and maybe much sooner. Because science, of course, goes totally unpredictably, but it very often goes fast. And so the quantum revolution was just an amazing event, which suddenly made. So the whole of physics and chemistry more or less clear almost overnight. And, and uh, so the same thing could happen in biology. It hasn't happened yet. And, but I wouldn't find it surprising if it did. But the general question of, of limits, there are some limits, right? So we have the, the Big Bang, the first, what's the right phrase? It's not the nanosecond. It's the picosecond. It's the... Right, that's that's veiled from us to some degree, correct? Well, to the amazing extent, we do actually see back that far. I mean, that's of course something that's happened just in the last twenty years. That uh, up to twenty years ago, we only saw a tiny little corner of the universe. Everything else was just darkness, and you couldn't believe what you liked. I mean, <laughs> cosmology was essentially just. A, collection of, of unverifiable theories. And, and now, 20 years later, we're seeing everything almost back to the beginning. And it's, it's amazing how quickly the, the universe has become visible. And we're now just talking about details. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazingly rapid change in, 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 in our whole view of the universe. And so uh, I've lived through that and, and many other things of the similar kind. Why did our view of the universe, what, what changed that allowed us to see so much more? 
mostly just new tools, but, and, uh, and and of course the, the, the most important tool in a way was the computer that uh, yeah. suddenly we are able to handle big amounts of information cheaply. That that makes a huge difference so in, in in almost every branch of science. Certainly true in genetics. It's true in astronomy. It's true in chemistry. That quite suddenly. You can grasp very complicated processes and actually see what's happening in a way we never could in the even twenty years ago. Well, let's talk about the origin of life for a minute. Uh, I, what do you mean when you say it's unanswered? I think most people assume that we have a pretty good scientific understanding of the origin of life. So, what, what do you have in mind? Well, who says we understand it? I don't know. I, I certainly every school child in America, no. <laughs> and every strange. biology teacher. You know, there was a soup, and after a while, there was some maybe lightning, and then there was amoebas, and then there was fish, and then you got birds, and then they got people. What's the mystery? Well, it's that little gap between the lightning and the amoeba. That's <laughs> that's where the problems are. And I mean, once you have an amoeba, of course, it's 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 fairly well understood how you go on from there. But that first step of getting from the lightning to the amoeba is, is an enormous gap. And, and I think most people who aren't scientists think that that was solved in a simulation in a laboratory in when? I don't know, the 50s, the 40s? Oh, the Miller experiment, yeah. yes. yes. That has been overhyped tremendously. And Miller is not to blame for that. Well, they rarely are. <laughs> the, the, the hyping is usually done by someone else, although that's not always true. Um, and are we making any? How would you? How do you think we're going to make progress on that question? Well, I think we are making progress, but it's 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 it's, it's of course you never can tell beforehand. The, the uh, I would say the, the progress we're making is sort of understanding the archaeology of the genome, the, of being, being able to see in detail how, how ancient genomes must have looked and how genetic information got transferred from one type of creature to another. It's, sort of the, it's rather like cosmology that we're getting a clearer view of the way things were long ago. And in, in course of time, that probably will bring us t t far enough so you can begin to see how it might have all started. We certainly haven't got there yet. Such an extraordinary thing that we can – that the human mind can grasp any of that, right? It's, yes. Uh, that the past is not – you know, there are philosophical theories that suggest that you know, the world might have started an, an instant ago and everything that we think of as the past is just a memory. It's a you – know, it's a famous thought experiment, but the idea that we can exp that we we can get data from the Big Bang is is um, and the genome is just it's an incredible thing. It's just yes, so no, it's, it's a it's a wonderful piece of luck in a way that uh, DNA is, is 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 really a very very good medium for preserving memories. So you've been a scientist for a very long time. Um, that's one of the virtues of being old. How has the practice of science changed uh, over your lifetime? What has changed for the better and maybe what's for the worse? 
Well, of course, what has changed for the worse is we don't know each other anymore. It was, it was when I got into the game, it, it was still true that all, uh, the whole community of physicists was small enough so that you practically knew everybody, and you could actually you could read the physical review and the proceedings of the Royal Society every month, and that was it. And so you could keep up with the whole of physics at least. And, well, that's not possible today. There are now at least ten times as many people, and probably a hundred times as many journals. And, and it's uh, the proportion worth reading probably has gone down a little bit. Yeah. No, nobody <laughs> reads the journals anymore. Anyway, it's, of course, everything is on the web, and, and that's an advantage too. You can actually access the information more easily now than you could then. Only there's so much more of it. That you, you you still are stuck, but uh, anyway, no. I suppose that's the major change that the the field, almost every field of science, has become more specialized, and it's harder to to keep up, keep up with what's going on in the whole subject. But on the other hand, it's 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 wonderful, of course, to have friends all over the world on the internet. And email, I mean, email is. I think it's been a huge plus as far as I'm concerned that I have friends all over the world and we really stay in touch. What about the role of money? Uh, economics, for example, it used to be there were maybe two people who could make a little bit of money talking about economics to the general public. That was Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman. They used to have a column in Newsweek. They had different views of the world and um, – to be a public intellectual who did economics was – it was a pretty hard way to go. There just wasn't much opportunity. That world's exploded. There's a lot more punditry and proselytizing and pontificating and part of that's because there's a lot of money in it. Um, and you can make money and be rewarded for saying all kinds of things uh, in a loud voice. And has that played a role in physics and in science? Do you see – the any it's a political problem of sorts. It's um, see any of that going on? Oh yes, I, I mean of course. In some ways, I I, I I find it exciting that of course I I have a daughter who is a businesswoman, and I get to know a lot of business people through her, and sort of the modern type of. Entrepreneurs, I find uh, 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 very attractive. It's a, it's a culture which, in, in many ways, it's healthy and, and going forward very, very well. These, these young people who start companies when they're 21 and they don't have to bother with staying in college and wasting so many years getting a PhD, they, they can go ahead and do something in the real world. And that, uh, that to me, is very healthy. And it has had a, a, quite a large effect on science. So, that, uh, and I don't think that's that, that 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 it's not all good, but it's certainly not all bad. So, science is in, in, in much, in, in a way, in closer contact with the entrepreneurial world than it used to be. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. A little more practical as a result, probably. Of course, I had in, in, in sort of by accident. I happened to to know. Uh, 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 Maynard Keynes, the great economist in the days when I was a student in England, 
from sort of my view of economics, wasn't quite the same as yours. It was so he was, of course, an aristocrat who had used his knowledge of economics to make a private fortune, and so he could do whatever he liked, and he worked himself to death, but uh, he didn't do it for money. So just, that just, was, of course, a different world. Just the glory, which is a diff- different form of reward, probably. Well, he also had a, 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 a very strong sense of public duty. This was during World War II, and he was basically running the British economy and under very difficult conditions. And uh, he did amazingly well. What kind of contact did you have with him? Well, I was a student in his college, and he, he, whenever he get, could get away from government business, he would get back to Cambridge and carry on his hobbies, studying manuscripts of Newton and other things like that. Uh-huh. He had wide interests. Anyhow, uh, that was, of course, an unusual time, too, for uh, because money didn't matter. There was, was this, England during the war was a, a, a really socialist country that there was nothing to spend the money on, and so... It was the same here. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have much either, evidently. Yes. Well, it was, it was in many ways a good time, so everybody was sharing the hardships. And yeah, it, was, it had a, it had a um, easy to say from this chair in 2011, I'm sure it had, for those who lived and survived, there was a gloriousness to that privation and sharing that was uh, probably never like anything else you experienced. Yes, in a certain way, it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> and what did you do? What did you do during the war? Well, first I was a student at Cambridge, and then I became, went to work for the British Air Force as a statistician. And so, so, so I was only in, in, in the war for the last two years. A lot of smart people uh, helped out uh, through their knowledge of statistics. Milton Friedman did the same thing. Um, to shift gears, you've done some very interesting speculation on space travel. Tell us of what some of your ideas are in, in the past and what you're thinking now. Yes, well, I make a sharp distinction between space science and space travel. I think it's very important to keep those separate. Space science is, of course, in a, in a golden age. We've got because, largely just because of computers and data processing. Unmanned missions can do an amazing job of exploring the universe, and so we're doing marvelously well with exploring planets and exploring the sun and exploring the universe. With also with ground-based telescopes, but particularly with space missions, the, the Kepler mission, which has now just been in the news, discovering planets around other stars in huge numbers. And Anyway, so it's a great time to be doing space science, and it's getting more and more cost-effective as, as the payloads generally are getting smaller and the costs are, are staying more or less fixed. The, 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 the annual budgets haven't changed much for the last 10 years, so that's a, a, an enterprise which is doing extremely well. And then on the other hand, there's space travel, which is humans in space, which has been in the doldrums now for the last 30 years, which 
ever since Apollo, we have not been doing much, and it, it, it's, it's been wasting a tremendous lot of money flying little shuttle missions around the globe, going up and down and up and down, and nobody really knows what these missions are doing except just keeping the thing going. It's a, a welfare program for the aerospace industry. But, yeah. So the question is, what's to happen with that? And, and so that, that's where all the public debate is, Right, rightly so. We would like to have a space travel program that actually involves some real progress. Some space travel. <laughs> actually going yeah, someplace, yeah. yes. <laughs> and so the question is, what can you do? I think we ought to be concentrating much more on reducing costs. That's the, 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 the basic problem is just it you need something like a, a factor of a hundred in cost before space travel can be a, 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 sport, a sporting event that involves lots of people, not just a few billion-dollar missions. So uh, I, I think we could do a lot better by... finding cheap ways to launch payloads into space, finding cheap ways to travel. But, um, of course, the, to some extent, this is happening. Just in the last few years, the private space companies have started actually doing things. There's been the, the Falcon rocket, which has been a big success. And so there's a good chance that the private companies will, in fact, beat NASA by a factor of 10 in costs or something of that kind, which would really make a difference. So I, I think this, the, the, this, uh, this is something I find very hopeful. It's not yet proved that they can do it. In the political realm, there's a certain tension between an aversion to risk, um, which is as we get wealthier, we, we get more risk-averse. We also can afford to do bigger things, but that risk aversion is growing at the same time. So the no politician wants to kill a lot of people or be seen as responsible for it. So I think that's part of the problem. But it is an interesting question. Do you think that – what do you think would be the impetus for recreational space travel? What do you s suspect is the reason that people would want to you – know, we understand why people go to exotic places on Earth – the exotic places that are within reach of even advanced technology are a little bit barren. So would the, what do you think would be the appeal of it? Well, of course, everybody is different. I mean, but uh, the, 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 I happen to be a friend of Charles Simoni, who went up twice. And, you know, he's, as a, as a tourist, he's a, he happens to, to be the chairman of our board of trustees, so we see him quite frequently. And... Uh, so I went to Baikonur in, in Kazakhstan last year, or no, in, in two years ago, um, to see him launch. And it, it was delightful to visit Baikonur. That because the Russian space culture is very different from ours. They take sort of a much longer view. They think in centuries when we think in decades. And 
in Russia, it's a very ceremonious enterprise. The, the, when, when they have a launch, the whole town comes out on the streets to watch the, the cosmonauts walk by, <laughs> and they make a public declaration in the town square to say they're ready to fly, and the, the mayor and the officials of the town are there t- to make speeches. And then they all parade to the launch site. So it is a it is a, a sort of public ceremonial, which they're very proud of, and the whole town is uh, full of memorials to people of past heroes. And, and to, to be a cosmonaut is sort of more a vocation, not just a skill. And, and anyhow, it was nice to see that. Well, that, that spectacle reminds me of the role of a very expensive wedding and discouraging the cold feet on the part of the groom or the or the bride. Right, so, right? exactly. So you get your get your nerve up because it's going to look very embarrassing after we cheered you all this while. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yes, no, but anyhow, so anyway, that's part of the business. That it's a it's sort of a, 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 a public celebration which people enjoy. It's it, it, a, a, a international sporting event in some in some sense, but uh, and then you have people like Charles Simoni who are willing to spend big amounts of money just for the fun of going up there, and it, it, and it, it seems there's no lack of such people. Yeah, that's and, a big uh, group. So I, I, I imagine that will happen even more when there's more interesting places to go to. But even the International Space Station, which I would say is pretty boring, yeah. but they still are quite excited about that, and especially in Russia. Of course, the Russians built it, and they feel it's theirs. Well, it works. It's good for them. They've struggled with some of their technology. That's good. Oh, it is. It's, yeah. It is a beautiful piece of technology. And, of course, the Soyuz rocket is the most reliable launcher we have. And that's been more or less un- unchanged for 50 years. It's the but do you think there's a, role, a future of space colonization of people, given the distances involved and the natural restrictions and restraints that, that, that physics impose? Do you think there's a, a reality, a possible reality down the road of, of human beings living outside the Earth in extended ways? Oh, yes. But, of course, it's not just humans. It's life in general. That Absolutely, to my mind, it's quite clear life will spread out and, and I mean, life is just so good at adapting to, to, to different circumstances and uh, so we will certainly have I'm sure a wave of life going out into the universe and becoming much more diverse and, and that's uh, humans are just a part of that but it's all a question of your time scale whether you think in decades and or in centuries or, or, or millennia. And so I can't tell how long it will take. I mean, I'm sure it will happen. And uh, so the Russians certainly feel that way. Uh, they're going to the stars. That's what, that's what this is all about for, for them. And uh, it will take a while, but they don't particularly care. Well, as we say in economics, the opportunity cost of staying here is is much higher for Americans, perhaps, than Russians. They, their country is not as pleasant in certain ways. At least they don't seem as happy. It's, uh, well, it's Americans who are paying to go. Yeah, well, we like thrills, too. Yeah. 
Anyhow, uh, but I certainly in both countries you find people who like to go. Absolutely. But but I think it's really not about humans. It's about finding a, a whole ecology to to settle on Mars and turn turn Mars into a green planet. And that's uh, how how long that will take. Of course, depends on costs. Yeah. I would guess it's about a hundred years, but uh, certainly not ten years. And right. So it, it's not something that we can plan for under the American budgeting system. No, no. As you point out, it's it's likely to be a private enterprise. Uh, I think in this country, it, it probably goes better private, and, and private enterprises can take much bigger risks. I just want to apologize for my cheap shot at, at Russia. I just I I can't help thinking of my Russian friend who, when I would ask him how he was doing, he would say, "Fine, like all Americans." Uh, it's a certain cultural difference that I always find charming between Russians and Americans. I don't know if it's how universal it is. but uh, Something we've been talking about in this program recently is artificial intelligence and what is called the singularity, the possibility of quantum leaps in technology that would radically change the role of, of machines and artificial intelligence in our, in our lives. Um, do you think that's going to happen? Do you think – I had one guest recently who – Robin Hansen who mentioned that you know, the brain is just – it's just chemicals. So it's only a matter of time before we're able to replicate it in some digital way or some other way. What are your thoughts on that? Well, of course I don't know. It is uh, – I mean I'm, I, I, I'm, uh, I would say I don't believe any specific predictions about the singularity. I think this, this whole Kurzweil – Singularity doesn't make much sense if you look at it in detail. On the other hand, I think it's certainly true that the future of intelligence is very different from what it's like now, and that we see that to some extent already with the, with the information what was called the information flood. I've just read a new book about this by, by Jim Glick. I don't know if you've seen that. I have not. Anyway, the book is called The Information, and it's uh, essentially it's sort of a life of of, uh, of, of um, well, I've reached the age where names are a problem. But uh, anyway, it, it's uh, I've reached the same. I've reached that age too, just a lot earlier. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Anyhow, but I recommend the book. It's it's about the so the, the the flood of information which has changed the world, particularly in the last 20 years. And it's going on, and it, it certainly it will have transforming effect, there's no doubt. And that collective intelligence is, is going to become more and more powerful. And it's a, it's a question how do humans adapt to that. And uh, so we shall see. But I'm sure there will be radical changes, only I don't think anybody's clever enough to see how it's going to happen. Just curious, um, how widely do you read? What do you read, and how has it changed over time? Do you stay mostly in science? Do you read? A, how widely does your do your interests go? Well, I would say it, it, what I, I mean, what 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 I'm spending a lot of time on is writing reviews of other people's books and and. 
to, to so I mean, I depend on the New York Review of Books to send me things to review. <laughs> so they decide what I have, what what I should read, and and, and that's more or less what I do. It that the uh, it takes. I'm, I'm a fairly slow reader, so they, I, I, most of the books they send me are sort of peripherally about science. But not entirely, and, and so I, I'm I'm quite happy with that. I suppose the uh, I mean one of the books I enjoyed the most was a thing called The Age of Wonder, which uh, which I wrote a review of, which was a book about the sort of the turn of the 18th century, the age of the Romantic poets, which was also the age of Romantic scientists, yeah. and uh, a. a, a, a uh, most interesting period of scientific history, which anyway, that to, to, I suppose was one of the most memorable books I've read recently. Do you read outside of science? Do you read any fiction? Sometimes, but not, I say not, not recently. You write very felicitously for a scientist. I was wondering if you'd learned your craft from that as well, from fiction. Well, certainly I learned. I mean, as, as, as a kid, I, I, I learned the craft by having to write essays. I think that's something that I'm very very grateful for, that uh, we had to write an essay every week when I was in high school, and I really enjoyed that, and we took it seriously. The school teachers read the essays and criticized them. So it, that was probably the most valuable part of my education in a way. Didn't seem so at the time, no doubt. <laughs> no, it did. I, know I enjoyed it a lot. Oh, and oh, that's good. I had nothing but contempt for the science that we were being taught. And why is that? Well, because we knew more than the teachers. And why was that? Well, that was natural. I mean, science is something young people can do well with. Literature is something they could teach us. And How old were you when, we're, when you're thinking about this time? Well, that's sort of when I was a rebellious teenager, which I guess... Fifteen or sixteen, that kind of age. Uh -huh. Did you uh, tell your teachers you knew more than they did? Well, they understood that. I don't <laughs> think we needed to say it. And... Uh, okay, well, <clears throat> different question. Uh, over the last 300 years or so, the influence of science has grown in its prestige, and there seems to be less room for religion among the uh, highly educated. What are your views on religion and science and where that might be headed? Well, of course, I've said that many times that I think there's lots of room for both. And in fact, a lot of my science friends are also religious in, in, in one way or another and belong to churches or some of them are Orthodox Jews. And, and of course, Abdus Salam was an Orthodox Muslim. So it's perfectly compatible with being a first-rate scientist. So I don't find a problem there, and, and I, I get impatient with sort of militant atheists, particularly, of course, the, the uh, um, Dawkins, uh, who is telling all the young people that they have to choose either to be Christians or to be scientists, but not both, and which I think is a, 
very harmful thing to to to, to tell them. If they, at least it's harmful if they believe it. it it's, it's quite wrong. It's certainly not true that they had to choose. But it has this. I think Dawkins has the effect of turning a lot of young people away from science. Young people who do not want to give up their religion and think that then they better not get involved with science, which is a great shame. So that I think is, is certainly counterproductive. So I would say I'm uh, I'm very tolerant of everything except intolerance. That works on both sides. I mean, I'm Absolutely. against intolerant religion and I'm against intolerant science. You've made many contributions to human understanding across many, many fields. Um, are there some that stand out for you as special or that you're particularly proud of looking back? I don't know. I've been always a dabbler. I mean, I didn't think uh, – I, I never paid much attention to whether anything was important. I always just did things for fun, more or less. So uh, – I suppose. Besides the vacuum cleaners, I'm just kidding. We we know yeah. you don't have anything to do with this. No, I think in some ways what I'm most proud of is still getting emails from young people who read my books. I mean, that to me is a tremendous joy. And, and the, 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 the books which I wrote 30 years ago are still around, and young people still read them, and they write to me telling me that it made such a difference that they realize that their problems are not just theirs alone. <laughs> and, and So I'm very proud of that. I think that to, to be able to, to write a book that helps young people to understand what the, what, the, what the world is like, I think this may be the most important thing I've done. But most of the things I've done in science have really been frills and just, I mean, <laughs> little mathematical tricks which were fun to do but really don't, don't make so much difference. Like, I mean, well, there's maybe possible exceptions. I mean, the, the, the Orion spaceship was a grand dream which in some ways, is something I'm very proud of that, although it never happened and it will, I don't think it ever will happen, but it enlarged the imagination to some extent. So I'm proud of that. That, well, well, that wasn't my invention. That was Ted Taylor's invention. But I was proud to be involved with it. What was that? What is that? This was a nuclear bomb-propelled spaceship, which was... Uh, was the com competition for the Apollo program. Instead of using chemical rockets to use nuclear rockets to explore the solar system. And uh, technically it could have worked and we would be far ahead of where we are now. I mean, we, we, we were planning to go to Mars in about five years and that was in the 50s. So it was a beat, beating Werner von Braun at his own game. And, and uh, 
all depended on using bombs. And it was, of course, in addition to that, it was a wonderful way of getting rid of the bombs. That uh, we, Each mission would use about 2,000 bombs. So you could get rid of the whole stockpile in about 10 missions. And so that that was an additional advantage. It was the only sensible way of actually getting rid of the bombs. And why didn't it happen? What what stopped it? Well, simply the, the environmental problems. It was a, a horrible way of getting around since it, it left, you'd left radioactive debris wherever you went. And so... It was. Uh, I mean, it certainly wouldn't. It wouldn't uh, be possible at all under today's rules. Those that was fifty years ago. So we were thinking differently about radioactivity. But uh, anyhow, it became. Uh, it, while while this was going on, Linus Pauling was campaigning against bomb tests, and Linus Pauling. Fortunately, won. I mean, you know, he hmm. persuaded the world that bomb tests were not a good idea in the atmosphere. As we depended on bomb tests, if we were going to fly. So you describe yourself as a dabbler who did things for fun. I often tell students who are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life that they should do something they love if they can find something that they love that can pay the bills. There's a good reason to do something that pays the bills. It doesn't just mean that you're going to be comfortable. It means you're doing something to help others or something that they value at least. Do you think that's good advice in general, to do some, to dabble in the things that you love? Well, I think you need both. I mean, you certainly should have, a, as, as Einstein said, it was actually an advantage to work at the patent office and be able to do science in his spare time. In a way, that's a, that's the best situation to be in. So you're paid for doing something that's not too demanding, and then you have time left over for doing science. That's not so easy these days, but I, in many ways, that was my situation, that I had this very, very convenient job at the Institute with a certain amount of administrative work. I I I, I had to take care of admissions and other things and go to committee meetings and so my official job was really half time and the rest of the time I could do whatever I liked or didn't have to be mathematics I could also write books and so I think that's on the whole the best situation to be in and, uh, and it's just possible I have a daughter who is a medical doctor who has this arrangement that she married a medical doctor and they share a job. So each of them works half-time, spends the other half-time with the kids. And that's, uh, I think, a fair, more or less ideal situation to the problem of raising a family. If you can get a half-time job that pays for your, for your groceries, have the rest of the time free, it, it's, that, that's probably the best you can do. Now, you don't have a Ph.D., correct? Right. Now, how did that happen, and um, were there any costs or benefits to that? Oh, huge benefits. I think I saved at least five years, I would say. But uh, no, the reason it was possible in England at that time, the Ph.D. wasn't required. Lots of the men, uh, leading English scientists did not have Ph.D.s. Ph.D. was something invented in Germany and was regarded with some suspicion in England. 
Unfortunately, that's now broken down, and now the English are just as rigid as everybody else. But that was, I was just lucky enough I got through before it became compulsory. You also avoided the um, any damaging effects of graduate school. No, not altogether, because I was in graduate school, and uh, because I mean, the English system had uh, we had research students who were graduate students. It's just that they didn't have to have a PhD, but they could they still uh, could do research and and get the benefits of graduate school. So I did that at Cornell. I was in the graduate school at Cornell, and that was a wonderful time. So I've, I'm not against graduate schools. I'm only against this uh, tying it to the PhD. Of course, if you had one, you might do better than being stuck at Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Studies. But you know, who, you'll never—you can never know, right? It's one of those problems. <laughs> no, of well, I was always in good company here because uh, George Kennan was also my colleague, who did not have a PhD. Well, I, I have one, so it's easy to say it's overrated. I, you know, people call me. Uh, Ask me if they should call me doctor, and I say I'm I'm the other kind of doctor. I'm not the kind that helps people, yes. which I think is a good thing to keep in mind. It's it is a strange form of um, accreditation. It's um, it has advantages, but it it also um, I was joking about graduate school, but I do think there there are certainly advantages to being educated outside the mainstream system. Many disadvantages, of course, as well. Uh Last question. If you were 22 years old today, what would you do with yourself? What path do you think is – would it be the same, similar? Would you stay as in these areas of science and math that you've, that you've done or would you – do you think there's other places to go that are more interesting now? Oh, I would certainly go into biology, I would say. They, I always wanted to be a biologist, but in, in the old times, you had to, to work in a lab – there wasn't it wasn't really wasn't much you could do in in, in in theoretical biology. There were one or two who could do it, but it was uh, there wasn't a great uh, really wasn't much scope for doing theory. And of course now that has changed drastically. Now we have a group of theoretical biologists right here at the institute, and that's something I would have loved. And and uh, if I were 22 now, I'm sure I'd do that. And not necessarily stay within it for the rest of my life, but it's clear that this is a a, 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 a field that's just breaking open all the time, and and great things being done, and uh, just by uh, essentially by be being able to handle vast amounts of information and and and, and understand it in a way one never could before. That's what this group, this, what they call it systems biology, is what they're doing here. And uh, so that, to me, I think would be the first choice. And, but I could very well move on from there to neurology or something else. Neurology is probably sort of the next breakthrough science, which we, have, we haven't yet got the tools, but we certainly will. Where do you think biology will go in the next decades? What do you think? What what discoveries are we on the verge of that might be important and interesting? Well, clearly, sort of the the, the big unknowns are how in detail brains function, 
and the and the and then of course origin of life and those sort of, I would say the two really big problems and it's it, it's a toss up which gets attacked first and it all depends on the tools but you can see in neurology the it's fairly obvious the tools are going to be available when you can sort of miniaturize the sensors down to the level of individual cells so that you could have 100,000 little sensors scattered around in a brain and, and uh, record by radio or some other fashion in detail what a brain is doing and understand it. And I mean, that's, uh, I would say that's clearly on the way and it will probably happen within the next 10 or 20 years. So we'll have these sort of experimental tools to to see fairly clearly sort of what mem- what memory really is and what what decision processes are as, as they happen in real brains. It's not so clear how to do something comparable with the origin of life, but anyway, that's where I would look. It's to me one of the most glorious and remarkable things about our our scientific exploration is we look very far out and very close in, right? We look at the origin of the universe and then we also look at down to the cell and the inside the atom. It's just it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, last question. There's a lot of people who, um, who view science as, you know, and technology as, as somewhat dangerous. Uh, they worry about our ability to control it. Um, I'm less worried as an economist about that. I, I'm very trusting in processes that aren't controlled, but most people don't find those processes comforting. And so there's a lot of doom saying. There's a lot of people who feel we're going to exhaust the earth or maybe the only way we'll get, a, get away from that problem is by going to another planet, to some other part of the solar system or the universe. Give us your thoughts on on just the human enterprise generally and, and the role of reason and science in, in aving, helping us get to a better place, or are you a pessimist? So I'm certainly not a pessimist because I grew up in a time when the future really looked black. That was in the 30s when England was in the middle of an economic depression just about like like today. And also we were told that England, of course, had got the much, much worse pollution in those days than they have today. The London was really dirty in a way. It's, it's, it's been trem- now it's tremendously cleaned up. And, and so in all re- respects, things are better now than they were then. So, so if we survive, and then, of course, there was Hitler. Hitler and... and the negative. So anyway, um, as we survive that, I don't have much doubt we'll survive the problems of today. But in addition, I would say, I mean, to me, the most important thing that's happening in this century is the rise of China and uh, and India as well, but, but particularly China. That's, to me, much more important than all the doom and gloom that people talk about in, in the older countries. So China is a country which is going to, to become sort of the center of the world economy, and it's fairly obvious that they're going to find different ways of doing things. They won't do things the same way we do. 
But I would say on the whole that the future is in good hands, that uh, China is a country of very gifted people and very, uh, on the whole, reasonable people. I know a lot of them, and so I have great confidence that they'll do things sensibly. And uh, they have a, 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 a economic system which seems to work at least as well as ours, probably better, and they're able to get things done in a way that we are not. So there's a lot of reasons, I would say, for feeling happy. And, and uh, so I look forward to a, 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 a gracious transfer of power from the West to the East. And the main problem is to keep, keep it peaceful. But uh, so far, it looks okay. And yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd say it's a little too early to tell about the future of their economy. It's, we don't have much data on it that's reliable. It seems to be growing and doing very well. But to me, their um, centralization of power there, I find disturbing. It doesn't, that doesn't worry you. Oh, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that I, 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 I'm worrying about it. I'm, I mean, this is a, a, China is, to me, a very hopeful place, but uh, that's only because the Chinese that I know tell me that, and I don't know anything much about it firsthand. My guest today has been Freeman Dyson. Professor Dyson, thanks for being part of EconTalk. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.